Last December, we were in Genesis. I can't remember how long ago we started that series, but pre-Christmas. And we're starting back up in that this morning. If you remember the last time we looked uh, in Genesis 4, God had warned uh, Cain that sin was on the threshold of his life and he needed to overcome it. Uh, Its desire was for him. We said it was like a lion outside his door. God warned him about it. Of course, we talked about exhortation and hearing instruction and concern. We'll start in Genesis 4, verse 8, at Cain's response to God's warning, and then the passage we'll be in this morning will be up through verse 24. God warns Cain. Cain's response is, Cain told Abel his brother, that is, we assume, what his interaction with God had been, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So much for the warning. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And by the way, I hope this isn't too annoying, but I'm going to make quite a few comments as we go through this passage so that I'm free to talk about the two key concepts I want to focus in on after that. But I'm going to interrupt our reading as we go through. Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. This, of course, is a direct lie. He does know where his brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? This infamous phrase that's still used today, uh, I'm not responsible for him. Uh, I don't know. God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. These terms, two terms here, vagrant and wanderer, come from the same Hebrew word nod, which is used later. So we could say, wandering you will wander. And then later in this same passage, when it says he settled in the land of nod, that is the term wandering. He went and lived in the land of wandering. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Uh, You guys know, uh, if someone reads or knows anything about Genesis 4, this phrase, whoever finds me will kill me, and at verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife, immediately raised the question, Where did Cain's wife come from and who's on the earth that could kill him? Are you with me? Have you heard this? Okay. So who else is around? Because the story thus far has only told us that Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, right? That's all we know. Later, when we get to Genesis 5, and of course Genesis has these key links in the chain of genealogies. And if you look in the genealogy in chapter 5, you'll see a couple of things. One is this. Of each person in the link in the genealogy, it says this, they had other sons and daughters. They had other sons and daughters. So the genealogy is not to tell you everyone who was born. The genealogy is to say there's a line of promise that God's keeping His promise to Adam and Eve to provide a Redeemer. And the genealogies are for that purpose. So sometimes they may skip generations, for instance, later in the Scriptures. 
But that's not the point. They're not meant to be complete. They're serving God's purpose of saying, this is the line of promise. I'm keeping my promise and a Messiah is going to come. It'll be my doing is from this line. But of each person in the link, it says they had other sons and daughters. And so even in the Genesis 5 genealogy, it starts with Adam and Eve and it says Seth. Well, Seth isn't their first son. Cain was their first son. Cain's not in it because he's not in the line of promise. Abel's not mentioned, but they had Abel as well, but he's killed. Seth is the first child in the line of promise, and so he's the one that's mentioned. So by the time our story starts, just think of this. Adam and Eve have been having other kids all along. So we don't know how many generations are present at this point, but we could have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, as far as lines of descent, with each one of those lines having their own children, right? So we don't know how many people are present, but we've got a, if not a burgeoning, we've got a, a very rapidly growing population from Adam and Eve. So there are other relatives around. They're all related. Cain, as far as marriage, would have married anyone as close as a direct sister, to someone who was a great or great grand niece or something along that line. But Cain and Abel aren't the only two children in the world. There's lots of others. We don't know how many they're not named, but it's because God's pursuing other purposes in the story. Verse 15, So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, which we don't know what it is, it doesn't say, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. By the way, to us today, if you say that someone's judgment is that they went to another place to live, we don't think that's such a bad deal. In the Middle Eastern mindset, though, and in the Jewish mindset, and remember the first audience that reads and hears these stories is Jewish, For a Jew, significance meant living in the land. It meant belonging to a place God gave you and belonging to the family God had put you in. So we think, oh, I've got to go live someplace else, no big deal. That's not the thought here. It is significant. I'm cut off from the place I belong. I'm cut off from the people I belong to. This is a significant judgment on God's part to Cain. And we probably lack... Uh, the the worldview or the mindset to understand this is significant. This is not a little thing. Verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Enoch means something like initiator first. It's probably the thought that Cain is saying, I'm initiating or I'm starting my own line. He built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. To Enoch was born Irad, this is Cain's genealogy. Irad became the father of Mahujael, Mahujael became the father of Mahushael, Mahushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Now, we know from Genesis 3 or 2 that this was contrary to God's design, because God had said there, a man, singular, will leave his parents, he'll be joined to his wife, singular, the two spouses become one flesh. This is contrary to God's clear directives in Genesis 2. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. 
His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. A couple things here. There are seven generations in this genealogy, and we spend the most part of our time describing Lamech, and it's probably for this reason. Seven in the Bible is a complete number, like a week, seven days, you've got this complete cycle. Lamech is probably meant to be seen as someone who's typical of the line of Cain. In Lamech, we see what's typical of those children and that line that Cain has produced. And they're characterized by violence and pride. Just like Cain, that would be the point. Just like Cain, characterized by violence and pride. Lamech says he kills those who would even wound him. He would kill even a boy who happened to strike him. And he says, if Cain's vengeance was seven times the insult, mine will be 77 times the insult. Total pride, total indifference, total violence. That's what Cain's line has produced. Now, hopefully, as we've read this passage, some of these phrases and some of the elements of the storyline sound familiar. And I'm going to highlight, actually, this may sound extensive, but this is not all of the similarities we have in this story of Cain's murder and the aftermath and Adam and Eve's fall in chapter 3. And just listen This is several, but certainly not exhaustive. The similarities. Genesis 3, 9, The Lord God called to the man, this is after the sin, after the fall, and said to him, Where are you? Genesis 4, 9, The Lord said to Cain, Where is your your brother Abel? Genesis 3, 13, The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? Genesis 4, 10, He said, What have you done? Genesis 3.17, God to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Genesis 4.11, now you are cursed from the ground to Cain. Genesis 3.18, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. That is, the ground itself is cursed. It's not going to be fruitful the way it was. Genesis 4.12, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. Genesis 3.23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden Genesis 4.14, Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. Genesis 3.24, So he drove the man out. Genesis 4.16, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. This is pre-fall, but in Genesis 2.17, God had warned Adam and he said, If you sin, in the day you eat, dying you shall die. And in Genesis 4.12, God said as part of the curse to Cain, wandering you shall wander. And then also in both accounts, immediately following the sin or the fall, Genesis 4.1, the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. And then Genesis 4.17, Cain had relations with his wife. She conceived and gave birth to Enoch. He built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. 
Both of these, these stories are almost tit for tat. One phrase similar to the other. One line similar to the other. In both cases, you've got sin, bringing death, and bringing separation. And then, immediately following that sin and death and separation, you have the one who's in the sinful condition reproducing himself, reproducing another person alienated from God just like he is. Sin leads to death, and then we reproduce what we are. Cain is used, he becomes a symbol in the scriptures. You can read about him again in 1 John 3 and in Jude 1, but he becomes this symbol of those who are opposed to God. And remember we said in the promise when God said that Eve, one of your descendants will rise up and will crush the serpent's head. We looked at this before and said there would be two lines on the earth. One would belong to the king of this world, Satan, would live in his world and his kingdom. And the other line would be God's line, the line from which the Messiah would come. And you see that again this morning. We're seeing Cain's line developing is characterized by violence and pride. By the way, in Genesis 4.1 and Genesis 4.25, most commentators think in 4.1 when Eve says, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. Your, your version may say with the help of the Lord. That's actually an interpretation. The Hebrew is not there to say that. Most commentators think, or significant share of them do, that Eve's making a boast when Cain is born that like God, she has created a man. Are you with me? Theologically, this ties in nicely with the story because at some level, she has. Uh, God made a man and Eve made a man with with her husband. The problem is that the son looks just like her mom and dad, like his mom and dad. In other words, the son is the product of who and what they are, but no more. When you get to a verse we're not looking at this morning, but verse 25, Seth means given. Eve, when Seth is born, says God has given a son or a replacement for Abel. Do you see the difference? On one hand, I say I've created a life. On the other, I say God's given a life. But they're both accurate in the sense that Cain is, he's the reflection of Adam and Eve's fallen nature. And Seth is a reminder that it's up to God to produce and to keep a godly line on the earth from which the Messiah would come. That is, if Adam and Eve just reproduce on their own, they produce fallen sinners like themselves. That it's up to God to introduce and to maintain over time this line of promise. Changing gears entirely, and we'll spend the balance of our time on this, Uh, Another element I want to look at in this story is tied to mercy. The term's not used in the story, but it's displayed in the story. You know, oftentimes you read uh, some passage in the Bible and you kind of wonder, what is the point? Uh, What is the point? What do I do with this? What do I make of this? I'm reading this story and, you know, it's a development of people apart from God. It shows us what we are apart from God's influence and work in our lives. And that's helpful. But I'm still thinking to myself, well, why did God let Cain get away with this? Did you think the same thing if you hear this story? 
the guy's a murderer. He murdered his brother. And God says, sort of, go play in another place. Go find another sand pile. I'm thinking this doesn't make sense to me. But I, th- I think perhaps part of the reason, there may be others, but part of the reason is this, because God intends to show through Cain a reflection of his character of mercy. So stick with me and you can see if you agree. First, our English term mercy means compassion or forgiveness shown towards an enemy or an offender. And I find this uh, very interesting. You know, our term mercenary, mercenary is a paid soldier. Well, the root for mercenary and mercy are the same. And it's because the thought of mercy is that I pay up someone else's debt. Mercy means I pay up someone else's debt, just like I pay a soldier to fight on my behalf. Mercy means I cover someone else's debt myself. You can look in the Old Testament. Hebrew uses several words for mercy. The key is probably rakam. And this means the womb or bowels. I hope this doesn't sound gross. You know, if we talk about deep emotions, what do we say? We say our heart, don't we, in the West. But in the Middle East, they don't say heart. They say the bowels, our gut. You know, if you feel really sad, you don't feel it uh, unless your your heart may be racing or your breath may be changed. You feel sick in your stomach, don't you? That's the thought here. That compassion is this sense of mercy towards someone else that comes from the very middle of who and what you are. That's the thought in Hebrew. In Greek, the key term is eleos, and it means this feeling of pity, a feeling of pity. That's what we're talking about. Mercy is paying up someone else's debt. It's this deep emotion to take care of someone else's real problem, and not just a problem, but something they're responsible for. It's a sense of pity or compassion on someone else. Mercy is not giving a person what they deserve negatively, the judgment, the just judgment they deserve. Mercy is forgiving someone a debt they really owe. That's what we're talking about. So think of this. Uh, If you and I do something wrong, it's really wrong, we really know it, and we get caught, and we're going to have to answer for what we've done, What's one of the first things out of our mouth? It's like, if it's not have mercy, forgive me, I'm sorry. It all means the same thing, doesn't it? Please don't make me pay for what I did. Show mercy, cover up my fault. If someone is in a court of law and they're found guilty by the evidence of some crime and they stand before the judge to be sentenced, what might they sometimes say? I cast myself on the mercy of the court. Two things. One, they're guilty. There's no doubt about it. They've been convicted by the evidence in the court of law. They're guilty. But their plea is, please have mercy. Don't make me pay for what I did. That's the thought. Mercy in our mind sometimes flows the other way. If the bad guy that we don't like gets caught and he's facing the piper, what do we not want him to get? Mercy. We say, we want him to pay for what he did. But that's mercy. It's paying a real debt that someone really owes. That's mercy. Now, if God would show mercy to the very 
worst of us, what would that tend to communicate? If God would show mercy to the very, very worst of us, might that not speak to the rest of us that His mercy is probably available to us as well? Think of this story with Cain. Premeditated murder. It's clear that the reason he takes his brother out in the field is to get away from any help, any witness, whatever. Premeditated murder, no doubt about it. When he's confronted with his sin, he lies. He offers no sorrow, no sense of remorse. When he is judged lightly by banishment, he doesn't even acknowledge or thank God for mercy, that his life has been spared. He's thankless. It's clear in the story that Cain deserves judgment, but God gives him mercy. It's clear. There's no question about this. And think of this too. Again, if you're a Jew and you're hearing this story or reading this story for the first time, what do you expect God's going to do to Cain? Take his life. Because that's just. Why do we know that? Because God said in the law, given at Sinai to Moses, God gave what we call lex talionis. And I'll read you one of the passages briefly, Leviticus 24, 19 through 21. God said this to Moses, which the Jews know. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good. If you kill another person's animal, you will replace the animal. But the one who kills a man shall be put to death. That's, that's equal. It's even. Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 19 have variations on this same thing. Lex talionis, the law of equal judgment, that the punishment would fit the crime. Now, if you've watched old cheesy movies or if you've heard people, perhaps in our culture, quote one of these passages from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, or Exodus, sometimes people will say it in this sense. An eye for an eye means you're a small-minded, vindictive person. Have you ever heard it used in this sense? You're small-minded, you're just vengeful. And of course, this is exactly the opposite of what this means. Uh, think of this. Have you ever, uh, somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're ticked? What do you want to do? You want to run them off the road. A kid pushes you down, what do you want to do? You want to knock his teeth out. Guys, I know this isn't just me. In other words, don't you sometimes get this sense that somebody does something to you? I don't say it's not significant. Something that's significant to you. But your anger wells up and what do you want to do? Do you want to do the same thing to them? Not typically. You want to do to them seven times or 77 times what they did to you. Lex talionis was God's limiting judgment and vengeance. So Lex talionis said... You cannot do more than was done to you. We're keeping this just. So if you lose an animal, you'll get your animal back. The person will pay it back. But if you take a life intentionally of another, you'll forfeit your own life. That's just. Lex talionis was meant to prevent 
excess vengeance and blood feuds, which as you probably know today are still common in the Middle East. So this was meant to limit it. It's not some mean-spirited thing. This was God's limiting our sense of revenge and anger that we want to take back more than was taken initially. When God gives Cain mercy, and I'm a Jew hearing or reading the story for the first time, God's doing the unexpected. Because justice would be, Cain's life is forfeit. That's just. He took a life, he forfeits his life. Cain deserved death in judgment, but got mercy in banishment. And take this further. The rest of Cain's story... This doesn't sound too bad. And again, I don't mean to say it's nothing because it's significant, especially in the Middle Eastern mindset. Cain gets married. Cain raises a family. He's kind of like a successful businessman. He founds a city. He lives to a ripe old age. He deserved death and he got a full life because God was Merciful, because God, in a sense, paid up Cain's sin. One of the conclusions I've come to from this story is this, that Cain stands as an illustration of the mercy of God. That Cain is meant to be a beacon of hope to people through the ages and people like you and I, that there's hope for God's mercy because God's mercy is displayed in a person, in the person of Cain, who we might say represents the worst of us. The worst of us. Think of another guy who got hope. Think of this, another murderer, by the way. Uh, A guy who helped murder a man that was absolutely known to be innocent. A guy who chased down people to other cities for no better purpose than to throw them in prison and harm them. A man who was vindictive, hard-hearted, and mercy-less. And I'm thinking you probably already know of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Foremost means at the list of sinners, Paul says, I'm at the top of the list. That means I'm the worst of the worst. Why did Paul receive mercy from God? For this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, or as the worst, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Paul says, God showed mercy to me, so that as the worst of the worst, the rest of humanity would know there's hope for them receiving God's mercy because he's poured it out on somebody who's the worst, not the best. You know, by its definition, none of us deserve mercy because mercy is about a debt that we really owe. So none of us deserves mercy. But Paul says God displays his mercy by pouring it out on the worst of the worst so that the rest of us can have hope of God's mercy as well. Cain and Paul are examples and reminders that God does show mercy, and if He'll show it to the very worst of us, He'll show it to the rest of us as well. If the thief on the cross 
reminds us that we can come to Christ for mercy at any time in our life, even in the last breathing moments of a life poorly lived, then Cain and Paul remind us that we can come to Christ for mercy no matter the depth or vileness of our sin. Does this make sense? If God would show Cain mercy, if God would show Paul mercy, I've got a hope for mercy as well. You and I, everybody in this room, by the way, in one form or another, has received God's mercy. I mean, I don't think any of us have paid for the sins that we've committed. And as vessels who've received mercy, it's incumbent on us to take that mercy and have it be transformational in our lives so that Cain took God's mercy, sort of thumbed his nose, and went on down the road. When it says he built a city, he was, he was condemned to be a wanderer. But he built a city instead. He defied God's order. And just like Nimrod in Genesis 11, he builds a city to stay together, to defy what God had said. And his children grow up to be just like him. That was Cain's response to God's mercy. But you look at Paul's response to God's mercy. And he lives the rest of his life as a thank you to God for God's mercy poured out on his life. And that's what we should take from this. Not like Cain. Cain got God's mercy, but apparently never responded to that mercy appropriately. Paul got God's mercy and it transformed the rest of his life. You guys know the story in Matthew 18 about the Lord who's got all his slaves And one slave owns him a debt, I think commentator says today, something like $20 million. It's a debt that could never be paid by this slave. He pleads to his master for mercy. And what does the master do? Forgives him. Forgives him. The master shows mercy. He pays up the slave's debt. What does that slave do? He goes out, he finds one of his fellow slaves who owes him by comparison an insignificant amount of money. And what does he do to the slave? Does he show him the mercy he received? No. He throws him in prison. Well, word gets back to the master. He calls the first slave back in and says, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? You and I, as vessels of mercy, are called on to dispense mercy. It won't do for Christians to be hard-hearted towards other people. It won't do for Christians to be unforgiving towards spouses or children or parents or neighbors or friends or the list goes on. Because as those who have received mercy, you're called on, just like the man in Matthew 18, to show mercy. Christians should be characterized by the willingness to pass over, to pay up the real sins, the real offenses of others. This is, by the way, why you and I should be able to pray for our enemies, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. If you and I can't pray for others who've hurt us, 
we're not showing mercy. Mercy doesn't say a sin wasn't committed. It says I'm paying it up for them instead. And by the way, God's mercy is in no way detached from His justice. That is, there's no free ticket at the end of the day. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross as our substitute, that's when our sins get paid up. In other words, God's not showing mercy as if those sins don't exist and, and, can't, uh, and, and can somehow not be paid for, atoned for. Those sins are real issues that someone has to pay up. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place where God's mercy and His judgment meet. They're both real, and He meets them both in the person of His Son on the cross. I'm just saying this. The cost of mercy is great. The cost to God for mercy towards us was the life of His Son. God doesn't dispense mercy freely because it's free. It's not. It's costly. He didn't set aside His justice when He dispenses mercy. He meets His justice Himself so that He's also free to dispense mercy. And part of the application of that for us is this. If the Scripture tells you or I remind you that we having received mercy, or to show mercy, it doesn't mean it's not costly to you to show mercy. It doesn't mean that it's pain-free. It doesn't mean that it's a cheap little sin or grievance. It doesn't mean that at all. But you and I are still called to give the same mercy that God gave to us. If you're not sure that you're saved, guys, Christ is the answer. We accept Christ's payment. He satisfied God's justice for us. So it's not that our sins don't matter. It's that Jesus fully paid for them. If you haven't trusted Christ, I'd certainly encourage you again this morning to do so. Otherwise, you'll face His judgment. In Isaiah, in one passage, God says of judgment. It's not, it's his, he says it's His strange work. And by that, He means doing judgment alone is not what most fully characterizes God. He does it and He's good at it. And again, the cross of Christ shows that God is perfectly just. But when God describes Himself, He doesn't say so much that He delights in judgment as He delights in mercy. God delights in mercy. And that's what I take away from Cain. Cain is a beacon of hope. If God pours out mercy on the worst of us, there's hope for the rest of us. Let me finish with this. This is not from the Bible, but this was on my mind as I prepared. And when I read it again, I just thought, wow, that says it better than I can. You've probably heard this before. The quality of mercy is not strained. It drops as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. It is mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein does sit the dread and fear of kings, 
but mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power does then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. When mercy seasons justice. Father, all of us tend to look at those we consider worse than us and say they deserve your judgment. They deserve no mercy. Lord, we're like the slave who owes you $20 million, requiring our fellow slave to pay us 20 God in heaven, help us when we read a passage like Paul's or Cain's to remember that you've poured out mercy on the worst of the worst to remind all of us that your mercy is available to us. Lord, it was available to the thief on the cross in his last breathing moments, and it's available to us today. Lord, none of us deserved mercy. None of us deserved your grace. Help us to be slow to sit in judgment on others, Lord, as those whose sins have been covered by the blood of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.